Cast Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f do you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- put that in. I don't. So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I would know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this, he sucks. Well, he is out. He's out. Yes, sir. Right is out. Look at, look at this. Right is out. And uh, Damon Mack. I'm not here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It's been run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the hundred years of the present time. Sell the team. Oh yeah, once again, John P. Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, catching getting you caught up on everything going on in Major League Baseball. And you know, obviously, you know, anything that you want to continue the conversation with me, feel free to tweet at me at John underscore Pielli. A lot of different things we're gonna get into over the course of the next couple hours here, do it. I got some interviews that I want to play. I also got some topics that I brought up on my Bases Empty blog. Check that out, johnpielli.com. And also want to go on to some conventional things going on in Major League Baseball. I'm going to touch a little bit on the managerial changes, the new managers in Major League Baseball. Maybe there was somebody left out. Uh, talk each, you know, individually about each spot and what ends up happening. And I do want to touch on a little thing that goes on. And this is what I'm going to start out with. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, the perception that people have as fans coming into the beginning of the offseason. Obviously, you know, you go through spring training, you go through the entire season, the postseason's over. Once the once the World Series ends, you know, it is about what is the team going to look like for the next season. And whether you're a fan of the New York Mets or a fan of the New York Yankees or a fan of the Philadelphia Phillies or any other team in Major League Baseball, the focus is on what is that team going to do to ensure that it's going to be competitive, if not win or compete for a World Series title in 2014. And what ends up happening is obviously a couple days are going to go by in free agency, and we see it. We've seen it already. Free agency has started, but not much is going to be going on. You know, as soon as teams uh, can sign certain players, on that first day right away, it's not like all the guys come off the board and all of a sudden the bidding war is up, everybody's bidding on these players and they sign right away. This is a process that usually takes a couple months. And a lot of fans, a lot of people that follow baseball don't really get that. And I think a lot of there's always the overreaction when you know stories come out because you got to look at it out of the perspective from the writers. You know the writers are just done covering the postseason, covering the World Series, done covering their respective teams as they get set to go into next season. And what are they going to do? They're going to go out there and dig as much as they can. They're going to go and talk to as many agents as they possibly can, as many 
players as they possibly can, if they could speak to anybody, and organizations, whether it's guys associated with Team A or Team B. And what they want to do is find out what they're looking to do. And the teams, from from their own perspective, are probably looking to do any one of a number of things. They, not, not every baseball team, and I don't think there's any baseball team that goes out there and decides that they want to you know, get this guy to play left field, this guy to play second base, this guy to pitch, and this guy to relieve, and that's going to be our offseason. You know, many of the moves are contingent based upon what players are available, what players have interest in coming to a certain organization, and obviously the trade market and what ends up happening with trades of what players are available. And if that player is available, all right, what's going to be the cost to end up getting that player? You know, teams have needs. And, you know, in regards to the New York Mets, they obviously have a ton of needs. And, you know, if you're Sandy Alderson, if you're John Ricco, if you're J.P. Ricciardi, if you're Paul D. Podesta, what are you looking to do? You're looking to scout as many different players as possible. You're looking to inquire on as many different players as possible. And just because you inquire on a player does not mean that, you know, that's the player going to go out and inevitably sign. But if you're a fan, if you're a guy that's just following, you know, the latest news, hey, the Mets talked to Rafael Fercal, the Mets talked to Corey Hart. Does that mean that the Mets are going to go out there and sign Rafael Fercal and Corey Hart? Well, in the mind of a lot of fans, you know, the answer is yes, even though that could be any further from the truth than it really is. And teams are going to go out there and do their due diligence. You know, in regards to the big free agents out there, like we talk about Shinsu Chu and Jacoby Ellsbury and Matt Garza and Curtis Granderson. And obviously there's a lot of other, you know, decent free agents to good, to very good free agents that are out there on the market right now. Most teams are going to do their due diligence. You know, the example that could be made is the Houston Astros. The Houston Astros have set out a little bit of a flyer or inquired a little bit about Shinsu Chu. Does that mean that the Houston Astros are all of a sudden the favorite to sign Shinsu Chu? No. Jeff Luton, now the general manager, owes it to the organization and its fans to do his due diligence and check to see what's going on with a player like Shin Tzu Chu. Would he love to have Shin Tzu Chu? Absolutely. Is he going to be able to afford him? Uh, odds are he probably won't. With the way the Astros payroll is set up right now, they're probably not in a position to go out there and spend the amount of money that it would take to bring in a Shin Tzu Chu. But as the general manager of the Houston Astros, Jeff Luton now has you know, the right to inquire on a player like that. It doesn't mean that the Astros are all of a sudden a favorite to sign them. And in regards to the Mets, it doesn't mean that they're going to go out there and the Mets are going to sign Raphael Fercal and Corey Hart. They may. But you know, there's no guarantee that that's going to be the center of their offseason. But what they're doing is they're looking in on certain players. They want to see if Raphael Fercal is healthy. They want to see if Corey Hart's healthy and what type of asset they could be if the, the Mets would consider signing him. And obviously, they're not the only ones that are looking in. There's many teams that are going out there looking at Raphael Fercal. The Boston Red Sox would be interested in Raphael Fercal. So that, that doesn't mean that they're going to go out there and sign him. And I think a lot of people overblow the whole thing. And I think a lot of it has to do with Twitter. You know, and, and everybody's going to scroll their timelines and try to figure out what's going on with this, what's going on with that. Once a rumor is posted, all of a sudden that's going to be the next thing that their favorite team is going to go out there and want to get and try to acquire. But it's not always the case. And it's way too early in the offseason right now to get yourself all hell-bent and bent out of shape 
over rumors that you hear about whatever your favorite team is looking to do because you, your favorite team is not the only team that's making these type of inquiries. And, you know, if, the, you know, if you're a Mets fan, to say that the Mets offseason is going to can, 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 you know, be about signing Raphael Fercal and Corey Hart and maybe Michael Morse and call it a day, at, you know, there's no proof that that's going to be the case. And I understand from the Mets fans' perspective that Sandy Alderson, as the general manager over the last three years, has given you the impression that he's going to go out there and try to find every little bargain that he can do. And you know what? To a certain extent, he's done that well. The only thing that's been missing is spending the money on the impact players that are going to cost the amount of money that you have to spend to get players like that. And that hasn't happened yet. And all the talk could be about the amount of money coming off the books, the Santana contract, the Bay contract, and you know the freedom that the Mets are going to be able to have to upgrade themselves in certain areas. And because they inquire about Rafael Fercal and Corey Hart, who probably will get a below market value because of the injuries that they're coming off of, does not mean that the Mets are not going to go out there and spend that type of money to upgrade their, their needs that they have on this team. They've made it known that they're looking for an outfielder or two and a shortstop and maybe even a first baseman and a starting pitcher or two, one of them being a top starter that they could put up in the top three of their rotation, maybe a preference if they possibly could to get a top two starter. You know, they've got bullpen issues that they got to address. So you know that the team is, you know, consciously going to try to make these proper moves and get themselves in a position where they'll be better next year. Now, you judge Sandy Alderson on the finished product of this offseason, not by the first couple days, not because he's talking to Rafael Fercal and Corey Hart and saying, you know, you know, make that be the centerpiece of the offseason. I understand you as a fan, you're frustrated. You have every right to be of what's happened over the last three years and obviously the three years before that under Omar Minaya. But it does not mean that that's the way the offseason is going to set itself up. You know, I think it's way too early to figure out how anything's going to happen. If you're a New York Yankee fan, you you know you got to be talking about Robinson Cano, maybe a little bit about A-Rod. Is A-Rod going to be around next year? Is he going to be suspended for the entire 2014 season? If he is, obviously that creates more payroll flexibility for the New York Yankees. If Robinson Cano doesn't sign, number one, it creates some payroll flexibility for the New York Yankees. But number two, it creates a big hole that they had to try to fill you know, to replace their best player right now. And there's no question that Robinson Cano is the best player on the New York Yankees. So, obviously, they're going to make inquiries. They're going to talk to the Cincinnati Reds about Brandon Phillips, who obviously isn't Robinson Cano. He's a very good defensive second baseman. He hits for a little bit of power. He runs a little bit. He's a good guy in the clubhouse, but he's not Robinson Cano. Omar Infante, obviously, is not Robinson Cano. But if you're the New York Yankees, you got to be prepared. You know, when that team, if, if there is that team, Let's say the Texas Rangers or whatever team that you want to say is going to go out there and spend the kind of money it's going to take to pry Robinson Cano away from the Yankees. Because let's be honest, I mean, you know, if, if dollars or even, if the Yankees are offering the same amount of money as any other team in Major League Baseball, odds are Robinson Cano is going to come back to the Yankees and continue his career where it started. But if, if, you're, if you're a team that's able to blow the Yankees away and convince Robinson Cano to change and go to a different organization, then obviously the Yankees have big shoes to fill. And if you're the Yankees, you know, the Yankees, you know, you, you also hear on Yankees Twitter that people are going out there saying that, all right, the Yankees have decided that they're going to draw their hand, you know, their, their line in the sand and not pay Robinson Cano more than a certain amount of money. Where's that proof? 
The Yankees are doing, like I said before, with the Astros and Shinsu Chu. The Yankees are doing their due diligence. The Yankees owe it to their organization, to their fans, to the, you know everything that they built with their empire and their organization to prepare themselves if, for some reason, Robinson Cano, who, by the way, is a free agent. And I know we all know that, but I think sometimes you know we look at free agents that belong to certain teams and we think that uh, the team, the New York Yankees in this instance, where Robinson Cano have right of first refusal or last refusal. You know, If Robinson Cano wants to go sign with another team tomorrow, he can. He's a free agent. And the Yankees, from their perspective, have to look at the possibility of Robinson Cano not coming back next season. And if he's not, they need somebody to play second base, whether it's Omar Infante, whether it's Brandon Phillips, whether they think of some other plan to replace themselves in the short term and eventually in the long term without Robinson Cano there. So they're doing their due diligence. And that's what teams do at this point of the offseason that a lot of people don't really give you know, the proper credit to what, what is really going on. You know, you want to hear, all right, second one of free agents, you know, signing. Hey, this guy's going here, this guy's going here, you know, this trade is made here and there. Most of the stuff doesn't happen until the end of November into early December. And obviously you got the winter meetings coming up in, in, you know, in December where you hear really the biggest stuff going on. And generally into the new year, there's still top free agents that haven't been signed yet. The offseason has just gotten started. Relax. Chill. You don't have to go crazy over every little rumor you hear about your favorite team inquiring about a certain player. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. What we're going to do is I'm going to play my first interview that I recorded this past week. And I recorded an interview with former Major League pitcher Greg Hansel. And Greg Hansel pitched for 11 different organizations and then ended up going to Japan to finish his career. Started out with the Boston Red Sox, ended up being traded to the New York Mets, then traded to the Dodgers, ends up being traded several times throughout his career. We talk about that. And here's a guy that ends up, you know, kind of established himself a, l- a little bit as a relief pitcher for a couple of years in the major leagues and finishes his career off where he's kind of comfortable pitching in Japan where he actually spends three years of his career there. So hopefully you guys enjoy this interview with former Major League pitcher Greg Hansel. This is John Pielli. I'm here with former Major League pitcher Greg Hansel. Greg, what's going on, man? Not much. How are you, John? Oh, pretty good, man. Pretty good. You know, of course, Greg, you had a chance to pitch, you know, uh, several years in the Major Leagues. You know, you were originally drafted by the Boston Red Sox in the 1989 draft. Uh, take us back to that time and, you know, what it felt like to be drafted and, you know, how really the early part of your career went. Well, I really had probably the, the best season I could have had as a high school senior, finishing up winning the championship game at Dodger Stadium uh, for the title. And then two weeks later, I was literally signed, sealed, and delivered to Larry in Florida and as a new member of the Boston Red Sox. I was pretty raw. I was a Southern California, West Coast mentality kid. Uh, didn't realize too much about the game of baseball um, and kind of just showed up in Florida, went behind the ears, and uh, kind of went from there as far as, hey, you know what, simple game of throw the ball, hit the ball, catch the ball, and um, and then, then it got really interesting. So, but yeah, no, uh, starting with the Red Sox, I didn't really know and understand what it meant at that time, what it was to be a Boston Red Sox not knowing about football fans and all the other stuff coming from the West Coast. You know, growing up, I always thought there was 
messengers and the angels. So it was neat to, to experience that. No, absolutely, man. And of course, you know, you weren't really with the Red Sox that long. You know, you played, uh, you know, you played rookie ball there in '89. In 1990, you end up being traded to the Mets in the deal that sent uh, Mike Marshall over to Boston. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, because uh, you know it had to be it had to be a shock to you. You know, so early so early on, you just you know you just signed out of high school, like you said. You know, you're a West Coast guy going over to the East Coast. You probably started to get yourself acclimated, you know, with the Boston Red Sox organization, and then all of a sudden you're traded. Right, and that that story in itself um, is kind of funny and sad in the same capacity, but yeah, I was just settling in with the Red Sox, uh, had a couple good roommates, uh, Jason Friedman was one, um, so kind of going through that whole Florida State League at the time, when uh, it just happened that my brother was in town, and we just got back from a bus trip, I think it was to Clearwater, we were coming back in, and my brother says, hey, how are you like pitching in uh, Shea? Of course, being a West Coast guy, I'm like, Chase Hale, what is that? He's like, well, I just saw on ESPN that you got traded. And so I went in and I talked to my manager, Dave Holt, and I said, Dave, I go, my brother just said I got traded. And he asked me, he says, well, where did you hear that? And I said, well, he heard it on ESPN. And so Dave says, well, there's one way to find out for sure. Major leagues, and you know how you how it felt to be a big league pitcher finally. Yeah, 
Yeah, well, and it, and it was a long journey. Um, one of the first things that happened to me when I got over to the Dodgers was I uh, ended up uh, finding a really good roommate in Mike Piazza. And Mike and I came up throughout the minor leagues together. Of course, he went on and, you know, hit a million home runs or whatnot. And his kind of career just soared where I had to kind of pay my dues and, and really battle, especially having to pitch in Albuquerque with the, with the ball flies. And then getting up, finally getting the call. Um, there was, you know, discussion I was going to get called up in 94, but the strike happened. Uh, I was really throwing the ball well. I had probably one of my best years, unfortunately, with a strike. It really kind of hurt my, my career. But then I, I, I broke with the team in 95 and uh, probably didn't have the stuff that I had the year before, didn't have that confidence going into the season. But, again, making my debut um, as a Dodger, uh, growing up as a big Los Angeles Dodgers fan, having all my family in town uh, at the game, it was a really, a really a big thrill. Yeah, I'm sure it was, and you know, of course, you know, you end up, you know, pitching about, you know, half a season, a little more with the Dodgers, and you're traded again this time to the Minnesota Twins, where, if I'm not mistaken, I, you you finished the rest of that season in AAA. Right. Yeah. No. They uh, when I got traded, I was I was really struggling with not with my velocity, but just struggling with command. Um, and then I got uh, over to the Twins, and they really wanted me to work with their pitching coach down at AAA at the time was Rick Anderson, and he was another one of my many pitching coaches that really helped out with my career. Uh, Rick Anderson was one. Um, uh, Bert Hooten with the Dodgers was another one. Uh, Joel Horland with the Mets. Just some of these guys that I was able to pick up a little few pieces. But when I got traded over to the Twins, they wanted me to work specifically with uh, Rick Anderson. And, again, he kind of straightened me out and uh, got me throwing the ball back the way I was. And, yeah, and I tell you, Rick Anderson has a very good reputation. Once again, John Pielli here with former Major League pitcher Greg Hansel. But, you know, he, he has done, you know, a lot of good work with a lot of different pitchers, so you're definitely in the right hands there. Uh, you know, after, you know, of course, you end up after the 96 season, you end up getting selected on waivers by the Red Sox. Um, you signed as a free agent with the Milwaukee Brewers. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, that change because, you know, you end up, you know, you end up, you know, pitching a full season in Minnesota, like you said, and then you're, you know, you're back switching organizations. This time you get a little bit of a cup of coffee in 97 with the Brewers. Right. Yeah, I was picked up by the, the Red Sox, went into spring training with them. Uh, again, some of the, the weirder things of baseball ended up getting released um, by the Red Sox. Uh, that's another long story. Um, that uh, kind of got me upset, but then I really kind of came to the conclusion that, hey, it's a business, and uh, I needed to start to treat it like a business. Unfortunately, I was one of those, like, naive Southern California kids that was just there for the love of the game, and when you get kind of thrown around and pushed here and point there, you got to kind of realize, okay, hey, well, how am I going to take control of my career? And I was able to, uh, after being released by the Red Sox, um, to walk on with the Brewers and really try and work on the things that were going to get me back to the big leagues. Um, but I did, I did get a, a, like a, a little brief cup of coffee. Uh, they brought me up for a couple of doubleheaders. Um, got to face the uh, Seattle Mariners lineup where I think it was like Alex Rodriguez was like batting ninth. That, that, wow. that lineup. And again, didn't fare too well, but, you know, again, battled with 
Yeah, so that, you know, after that, you end up you know, uh, going through a couple other organizations, Arizona, Oakland. You get traded to Kansas City, and then you, uh, you end up uh, going through the Giants, and then finally with the Pittsburgh Pirates. You end up having a pretty good season in 1999 with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Uh, you know, kind of as a middle reliever, you know, you, you, your strikeout for innings pitch were, were certainly up, you know, the ERA down. Tell us a little bit about the 1999 season and getting a chance to pitch in the Pittsburgh Pirates bullpen. Yeah, and, and, and it's, I mean, literally for about two and a half years, if you look at it, you, I think you missed a couple more teams in there, but <laughs> I'm talking about bouncing around. I was uh, in the process of, i uh, just been married, and, you know, I just briefly told my wife, I was like, hey, honey, I'll, I'll, I'll send you a postcard from where I'm at because I don't know where I'm going to be next week. I literally went to eight different organizations in about a two and a half year span. And, uh, but then the, the Pirates, they got me an opportunity. Um, uh, first batter I faced, I think I walked the next batter, I hit a home run, and then after that I finally realized I went, well, I'll put so much pressure on yourself, and I kind of settled in. Um, again, they stuck with me, and we didn't have a great uh, team, uh, um, but, you know, we battled day in, day out. I had Jason Kendall as a catcher, and I had Pete Rukovic as my pitching coach, and finally kind of felt like I had a place to stay. Yeah, absolutely, and you know, obviously, you know, the numbers certainly back it up. After that, you end up uh, heading over to Japan, where you end up becoming a starting pitcher again, and you stick around there for a couple seasons. Tell us, you know, first about you know your experience of like you know you know finding out that you know you're going to be pitching in Japan. Was it something that you wanted to do? And then a little bit about you know your experience there. Yeah. Well, ironically, and I think it was when I was with the Dodgers, uh, I went to the Private screening of the movie Mr. Baseball. Um, Tom Selleck used to come out a couple times a year and work with us out at the fields, and I got a chance to meet Tom Selleck. And sure enough, fast forward a few years later, I kind of was living the, the life of Mr. Baseball out in uh, for the Hampshire Tigers. Um, I actually, when the, the, the time came and my agent called and said, Hey, there's a team in Japan, and the Pirates are you know, willing to sell your contract, what do you want to do? And I just said, Hey, you know what? Maybe that's where my future is, and I went over there, and to me it was probably the best thing that happened in my career. I know uh, a lot of people would think that it was kind of a demotion, but I really, really liked Japan. My wife loved it. Uh, my family loved it. It was just a really great experience over there. Uh, completely different game over there, um, from the coaches to the, the, to the fans, but overall, what a great experience for me. And pitching um, for the Hanshin Tigers was Yeah, John Pielli here, former Major League pitcher Greg Hansel. Now, I, I bet you the best thing you liked about it was the stability you had over really those two-plus seasons that you were you were there. At least you knew you were pitching for the same team for an extended period of time. Right, yeah, and that's what it was. It was a one-year contract, and, you know, I pitched well enough to last the second year. I pitched well enough that second year to last the third year. Um, but, yeah, no, it was nice. I mean, I had uh, my son Jacob and my son Josh were both born uh, while I was playing over there, and it's it, it's nice to be able to know that, and, and I guess it's happened since then, but I wasn't going to be traded, I wasn't going to be, you know, kicked out, <laughs> or whatever it was, I actually had a place that I could, you know, I knew when I was going to pitch, 
I felt like I really settled in, um, and again, that's one of the best things that's happened for me, for me and my family, was that, that opportunity to go over there. Yeah, and then of course afterwards, you know, you end up trying to make a comeback to, you know, to the big leagues. You end up uh, going to the Yankees, the Diamondbacks. Um, you know, was there a certain time that you kind of felt like, you know, it was kind of all over, or was it something you were just going to keep throwing as long as you could? Well, it, it was getting to that point. In 2002, my last year in Japan, I ended up uh, hurting my back. Ended up having to have back surgery. Uh, I came back from that, and that's when my elbow started to act up. So I ended up having elbow surgery as well. So I was it's, uh, too old, but again, I had never had any type of issues before. And actually, you know, I had back surgery and elbow surgery in the same year. So it was kind of that rehab stint where I had to go and kind of reprove myself to everyone. And, you know, you're talking about a 31, 32-year-old uh, pitcher with surgeries, Never really stood out in the big leagues. Was predominantly a career minor league pitcher, um, and again, it's the, the opportunities. A lot of doors were closing, and uh, again, I was still battling back from injury. So it was a, it was a tough battle, and um, it started to get to that point where I had opportunities to play in the winter ball, and I pitched down in Mexico, had a lot of success, ended up winning the Caribbean World Series uh, with Team Mexico. Another great experience. Um, having been in, done it uh, 10 years prior in the Dominican Republic. So it was a lengthy career. I mean, it wasn't something to write books about, but at the same time, it was, uh, I battled as long as I could, and I think the, the elbow started to act up enough, and I had to make that decision whether it was going to be uh, another surgery or spend time with uh, the kids and family, and I chose the latter. Yeah, I'll tell you, what really stands out, obviously, is, you know, the fact that you were within so many different organizations, you know, and I, I think it came out to 11, 11 different major league organizations, a couple of them you were with twice, you know, you end up, you know, you know, going over to Japan, you know, you certainly, you, you know, you, I'm sure you picked up some frequent flyer miles. Listen, Greg, I want to thank you for having some time, appreciate you giving me a couple minutes, and let's stay in touch, man, maybe we're going to speak to you sometime soon. Awesome. Thank you very much, Chuck. Take care. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that interview right there with Greg Hansel, former Major League pitcher for the Dodgers. He was with the Mets organization, a Red Sox organization, pitched a little bit for some other organizations, including the Pirates and Major League Baseball. But we're going to take our first break of the program. We'll be back with a lot more stuff going on. Past Ball Show, MTR Radio Network, back after this. Hey, guys and gals. Want to have a great time dining out while watching your favorite sport on HGTV? And come on down to Hooters of Princeton, New Jersey, located on Route 1 South in Trenton in the Mercer Mall. Hi, I'm Deja. And I'm Corey. These are great deals all week, bound to whet your appetite and satisfy your hunger. Check out our Bunday Mondays, where you can have a delicious cheeseburger and fries for only $6.99. On Tuesdays, we have all-you-can-eat wings all day, just $12.99 per person or $10.99 for boneless. On Wednesdays, you can get 10 boneless wings and an order of fries for just $6.99. On Saturday, kids eat free for every meal ordered by an accompanying adult, and the meals are served on Frisbee. We have half-priced appetizers from 10 p.m. until close every day. You can then enjoy your cold draft beer with our mouth-watering crab clusters for only $5. Remember, we are located in Trenton on Route 1 South in the Mercer Mall, just south of Quaker Bridge Road. For any information, call us at 609-520-WINGS. That's 609-520-9464. 
So come on in and watch your favorite football team while having a great meal, served up by the nicest and the hottest girls anywhere. Hope to see you there. This is Lady E, one of the many broadcasters at MTR Radio. If you're listening to mtrradio.com, fantastic. Qué bueno. But if you want to take us with you, we have an app for your smartphone that lets you listen to us 24-7. Just go to Google Play on your Android device or the iPhone App Store and download our app, MTR Radio. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Hopefully you guys enjoyed the interview with Greg Hansel earlier. I'm going to get into another interview I recorded with another former Major League pitcher. I'm going to let you know a little bit about him first. His name is Chuck Hartenstein, and Chuck uh, pitched in the 1960s and the early part of the 1970s, finishing his career in 1977 with the Toronto Blue Jays. He pitched for the Cubs from 1966 to 1968, the Pirates 69 and 70, the Cardinals in 70, the Red Sox in 70, and then spent seven years, six or seven years in the minor leagues before finally coming back to the majors with the Blue Jays in 1977. He also pitched 18 innings in a game in 1965, pitching for the Dallas-Fort Worth Spurs against Austin. Game ended up going 25 innings. He pitched 18 innings in a game that they ended up losing two to two to one. He was a coach with the uh, a pitching coach for the Cleveland Indians in 1979, and a pitching coach for the Milwaukee Brewers from 1987 to 1989. So hopefully you guys enjoy this spot with former Major League pitcher Chuck Hartenstein. Good afternoon. This is John Pielli. I'm here with former Major League pitcher Chuck Hartenstein. Chuck, what's going on, man? Oh, uh, not not a whole lot. Just uh, using that dead time between World Series and baseball. Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, to me it's a tough time of the year, too. You know, was, uh, you know I kind of can't wait till spring training starts. But, you know, Chuck, of course, you had a chance to pitch, you know, for several seasons in the major leagues. You came up in the Chicago Cubs organization. Tell us a little bit about, you know, how, how you got started and, you know, when you made your big league debut with the Cubs. Well, the, uh, uh, I was fairly successful in the uh, University of Texas as a pitcher. And at the end of the year, my senior year or whatever, I was uh, uh, just sort of right around. I figured the scouts would be showing up, whatever. But what I didn't realize is you lose your leverage if you go back for your senior year. And you're not, you know, a total star. Well, anyway, they, uh, finally, I started calling some of those uh, scouts. And I asked them, and they said, oh, well, we got, uh, uh, they talked to me before. Uh, I asked him, you know, this, uh, 
came in. And I said, well, uh, hang in there just a little bit. Uh, we're still negotiating. <laughs> so finally, about two or three weeks later, one, a guy, Bill Capps from the uh, Chicago uh, Cubs, came by and he offered me, he offered me a great deal. Five hundred dollars a month. That was it. <laughs> Bill, I got a car waiting for me down here. That, uh, Outstanding, and you know, right right before you made your major league debut, you were pitching for the uh, Dallas Fort Worth Spurs against the Austin team, a game that ends up going 25 innings. You end up pitching 18 innings that day. Tell us a little bit about what that was like and how your arm was able to hold up to pitch that many innings in a game. Well, it's it's not really that many innings to be quite honest with you. It was easy, and I'll tell you why. Uh, I thought that I had over half of those innings with less than, uh, you know, double digit, uh, single digit, and number of pitches thrown. So it wasn't that hard, really. I think I had one inning where I threw as many as like 15. The rest of them were all below that. So actually, it wasn't that hard because I was in and out in a hurry. And uh, in about the, I think it was fifth inning, fourth and fifth inning, one of their guys came up and he was leaning a little too far over the plate, so I threw a pitch up and, up and in. Well, it, it kind of got away from me, and it looked like I was trying 
had a hit on the head, which I was. But that's where it went. Well, I found out later that this particular guy that, uh, that happened to had been hit in the head and uh, had suffered a concussion and he had just come back. Well, anyway, after, after I hit that, uh, the next picture, he done it down the uh, first day slide. And when he did that, uh, actually, I called out to call the first base. And uh, I get the call, and I'm going to the bag, and all of a sudden, he just runs right over me. Wow. And uh, I hadn't been playing long enough to understand how, that, you know, how the game works like that. But anyway, separated my uh, left shoulder. And I didn't find this out until several days later. And... After, I just kept going, what happened, we had a one to nothing lead, and we're going into the bottom, or in the top of the ninth inning. And I made a mistake on it. I heard he got a, I think he got a triple in the left center field. And then somehow or another, it, they ended up scoring. So I was something I hacked at myself. And Whitey Waltman was a manager. So I thought of us, Whitey, I ain't coming out of this one. I'm going to finish this. And I told him that every inning until 18, and then it's not that I was tired. But he said, that's enough. I said, okay. What I ended up doing, I ended up like 180 pitches, a little over 180 pitches. So it wasn't, like I say, it was just uh, one way to say it, it was an easy 18. Yeah, and I'll tell you, 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 know, you can't imagine anybody throwing that many pitches in a game today. Obviously, the way the game has changed. But, uh, you know, 1967 comes, you get a chance to really get your first, you know, crack in the big leagues for just about a full season. Uh, you know, you end up saving 10 games, you win nine games for the Cubs in 1967. Tell us a little bit about the 1967 season. Well, uh, uh, when I got called, called up, they put me in the book, but I don't know when I came in the games there, you know, the air is a lot heavier in the north than it is here in the south. And consequently, I was a sinker slider, basically a sinker slider pitcher. And uh, just, uh, I loved Wrigley Field. A lot of pitchers, they say you're crazy for the say about. Well, I loved it because the background, that little brick wall that you see on TV, when I was is behind the pitcher there and the catcher. Uh, that wall was very close, and that that wall made it seem like you're only throwing the ball about 50 feet instead of 60 feet, 6 inches. So that was a, uh, well, that was a great advantage as far as I was concerned because it made it easy for me to get corners. And that heavy air naturally made the ball
what the, the situation was. Uh, I had, in 1970, I fished for three different clubs. I started out with Pittsburgh, I traded to St. Louis, and then uh, I got uh, released from them, but St. Louis got me a job with Boston. So when Jim, Jim Long boys, I took this spot on the uh, roster. And uh, I went all during that year. I had a bad career in 1970. I mean, everything I did was just, it just turned out backwards. And I, they were getting good pitches, this, that, whatever. So it was, I just had a bad year. And they told me when they uh, finally released me, they said, uh, you need to be more consistent. Well, that's what I tried to do. I went back to the minor leagues and I was with the Chicago White Sox in Tucson for a couple of years. And uh, I led the league and appearances. I, had, I was in over half our game. So, uh, and then uh, I got a couple of years later, I got traded to uh, Phoenix, which was San Francisco. And then I had two pretty good years there. And then, uh, because San Francisco at that time was very cost-conscious, um, they, they had to make a decision. They couldn't keep um, more than one guy, uh, old guy on the, the club as a pitcher, and they chose Ed Supla over me. Well, I got on the phone and started calling around, and I got hold of Roy Hartsfield, and he was manager in Hawaii. And he told me, he said, you stay in shape, and as soon as we can do something here, I want you to come play for me. So I, uh, I stayed in shape, he called me, and uh, I don't know, about a month or so after the season started, he said, come on over. Well, I ended up making the all-star team. And then uh, the next year, we won the, the Pacific Coast League Championship that year. And then the next year, I moved into that Aloha Stadium, and I pitched for him there, and uh, we ended up winning the whole thing again. Then he got the, he got the call to be the Toronto Blue Jays uh, manager. And as a matter of fact, as a, let's see, is that the fifth? November the fourth, he called. I don't remember that. It was my mother's birthday. He called me on November the 4th and he said, we just bought your contract from, uh, from Hawaii. You're going to be in a big lake again. And that man was like a father to me. So that's, I got back there and then uh, I found out later he wanted me to be his pitching coach. That they wanted somebody that's done it before. And anyway, they hired me to go to the I was a minor league pitching instructor the whole time. And that, uh, then we had a, a instructional league, or whatever you call it. Uh, we called it constructional league. But we, we went to down there, and actually Toronto didn't have that many players, so they split the squad with Cleveland. And well, it, I had Cleveland players, and I had Toronto players. And I taught everybody exactly the same way. And how, you know, there was no, uh, take care of my guys and, you know, screw 
and Jeff Torbord came down, and he wanted to see how things were going down there. Well, the kids from Cleveland got, got with him and told him, said, hey, this guy knows what he's doing, and we really like it. Well, uh, several months later, Jeff called me and offered me the job as the Cleveland Major League Pitching Coach. And uh, I took that. Uh, we, we had a lot of fun. So that was, that was another part of the life. Yeah, now, of course, you know, you end up getting into coaching, like you just said. You know, you spend some time, of course, as the, the Indians pitching coach, like you said. And then, you know, throughout the better part of the 80s, towards the end of the 80s, you actually get back into majors with the Milwaukee Brewers as a coach from 1987 to 1989. Let's uh, talk a little bit about that. Well, what, uh, what we had, uh, when I was with uh, the Pittsburgh organization, one of the managers was Tom Trouble. Chuck, I want to thank you for having some time. I appreciate you giving me, uh, you know, you know, some minutes for this interview. And, you know, best of luck to you, and hope to speak to you again soon. Well, thank you very much, and I hope I didn't bore you too much. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that spot there with Chuck Hartenstein. And, you know, it's amazing how quick this first hour has gone. But one thing I do want to touch on, you know, in regards to former Major League players, uh, Ace Parker passed away at age 101. And he was, a, you know, a pro football Hall of Famer, played a couple of years, 1937, 1938, with the Philadelphia Athletics. And, you know, rest in peace, Ace Parker. At the time of his death, he was the second oldest living former Major League player and the oldest uh, living former NFL player and the oldest Pro Football Hall of Famer in the history of the sport. So hopefully you guys enjoyed this hour. Coming back with a lot more stuff in hour number two. Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, back after this.